Good morning, everyone. So my name's Phil King. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Griffith Presbyterian Church. And this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in One Kings. Uh, when we look at the big picture of kings, there it is up on the screen. So we're currently here. That's where we are. Um, we are dealing, still dealing with Ahab and uh, Jezebel. They're on the right-hand side. Elijah, our prophet, is here, and he's got a great challenge coming up on the hill. And as we said earlier, this is you know, one of the, the most talked-about momentous occasions of the Old Testament. You know, it can be quite exciting. We remember that our book that we're looking through, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, they tell us about the kings of the northern Israel and the southern Judah. But these books also tell us about the prophets. The prophets were not fortune tellers. They spoke on behalf of the God of Israel. They played the role of the covenant watchdog, which means that they called out idolatry and they called out injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations and they should obey the commands of the Torah. And the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow God. So we've got this cracking passage to look at today. There's three very distinct parts. Um, Elijah talks to Obadiah and then in the middle, Elijah takes on the prophets on the, of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then the conclusion, a short lesson in prayer, which we pretty well covered in the kids' talk. I hope you're paying attention, uh, where God keeps his promise and he breaks the drought. But let's bow our heads in prayer now as we start working through this passage. Heavenly Father, you are an almighty, powerful God. You created this earth and you control the elements and you can send fire whenever you like. Yet you sent us your son with a message of mercy and grace. Lord, thank you for that. And I ask that your spirit might be here this morning to open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us this message that you want us to hear. Amen. So I'm going to plug our podcasts again. We've got a podcast channel. So if, you, if you're not at church on any Sunday, you can look it up on your favourite podcast. I, I listen to Spotify. It might be Apple Podcasts. It might be Anchor FM. I wasn't here last week, so I got to listen to Dan's sermon on the podcast. Um, and it's, it's a really good way of tuning in. And particularly when we're going through a series like this, we've had nearly 18 sermons in a row, one Kings all the way through, that you can catch up. And if there's something you want to listen to again, you can. Last week... We heard, we met Elijah, we met Elijah the prophet, we heard um, from 1 Kings 17 and God's pronouncement of drought on the land. We heard that King Ahab and his wife Jezebel had been leading the Israelites into worship of her God of the Baals and the Asherah poles and, and all those things and that uh, Elijah was asked to take this message back, back to Ahab. Um, hang on, I've skipped a... Uh out of order. There we go. Supposedly, Baal is supposedly a god of thunder and rain who helps to produce good crops. We heard about God's provision for Elijah, commanding the ravens to bring food for him. And then he went deep in enemy territory to live with a widow at Zarephath. Uh, and then God provided those endless jars of flour and oil. And then we made our way into the New Testament in Luke 4. And Jesus is speaking on this very passage in, in the commencement of his ministry. And he told those listening in the synagogue about what Elijah had done and what he was bringing from 1 Kings 17. And then Jesus was saying in no uncertain terms that he was here, Jesus came to earth for the Gentiles. He has called us to be in his kingdom. Now we're here at the start of our passage. Keep your Bibles open at 1 Kings 18 and follow along as we read this passage. 
1 Kings 18 opens with this verse, and it, it pretty well sums up everything we're going to go through. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. And that's it. That's what's going to happen. The land had been, drought for th- it'd been in drought for three years. No dew, no precipitation, nothing. But God tells Elijah to go to Ahab that he's going to break the drought. So Elijah has been waiting for this moment. He's had three years to think about what's going to happen next. And God tells him, this is it. Let's go. Let's get it done. He's going to send rain on the land. What have Ahab and Jezebel been doing for these three years? Well, these truly evil people have been killing off God's prophets in verse 4. Ahab then decides, well, he needs to go out and find um, some grass to keep his animals alive. He he wants to keep his his army strong so that he doesn't have to kill any of these animals. What about your people, King Ahab? Don't they deserve a king that cares for them and provides for them in the tough times? Ahab only cares about himself. We're introduced to Obadiah. There's a palace administrator. Now, Obadiah's got three distinct characteristics. We only get him for a couple of verses, but we learn that he's a devout follower of the Lord. He's managed to hide a hundred prophets and feed them. He's doing the exact opposite of Ahab and Jezebel. We can safely assume that the Lord is looking out for Obadiah. Secondly, Obadiah can be trusted. Ahab takes him out with him, takes him out of the palace, out into the, um, the land, Ahab goes in one direction, Obadiah goes in the other direction. And thirdly, we learn that Obadiah is intelligent. Consider the dialogue that happened between him and Elijah. He anticipates what's going to happen right at the outset. He sees Elijah, recognises him, falls down to him. Is that you, he says. And then Elijah asks him to take the message back to Ahab. See, speaking with Elijah is as good as a death sentence. Elijah's been in hiding for three years. Obadiah would rightly expect that Elijah's not going to be hanging around to talk to Ahab, who wants to kill him. And he says, what have I done? Verse 9, what have I done wrong? And in verse 13, haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did? And in verse 14, and now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said... As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah fulfills his duty, and the meeting with King Ahab and Elijah is arranged. You see, not all servants of God are called to be in the public eye, busy working in the background, keeping a low profile, yet making a significant contribution to the work of the Lord. That's Obadiah. That's what we see here. You might identify your own journey with God in the same way, Take comfort. It's a noble and valuable effort for the work of the church. The great challenge. Here we are. We're on top of the hill. Ahab greets Elijah and he calls him the troublemaker. Verse 17. Hardly a welcoming greeting, is it? You troublemaker. But immediately we get an idea of Elijah and back chats the king. Who are you calling a troublemaker? You're the one that's been causing trouble. And these guys are having a confrontation right there at that very time. And Elijah takes the front foot immediately. He issues a challenge to King Ahab. Bring all the people of Israel. That's all of them. Bring them all up onto Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah. Verse 19. This is going to be a big gathering. We've got a lot of people. Thousands of people are going to be there. It's going to take a few days to get them all there. They're going to get them organised, get up there, maybe a week or so, up onto Mount Carmel. 
It is a real place and there is probably a big enough place for all of these people to gather. There's um, archaeological digs and all sorts of stuff going on there in Mount Carmel and the people would have gone there exactly as it's written in our Bible. So before we get too far into this famous passage though, I've been doing a bit of preparation for this and I was asking people, um, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you remember this story? One of my friends just replied one word, bloody. And he just, you know, he texted it to me straight back. Would have been within seconds. And he's thinking about the sacrifice and the 450 prophets cutting themselves. And my brother pointed out to me that one of our child, childhood Bibles had a really graphic picture of this thing going on. And that's the image that jumped straight into his mind. <coughs> Another friend told me that this reminded her of uh, Moses and Aaron going up against the Pharaoh's magicians. In both cases, God went above and beyond what the others could do. They were no match for the Almighty God, proving that he was the run true God and he's not threatened by them. And then she added to this, well, where are my powers? Why can't I just you know, do these things? And, and often we might ask, you know, we, we see all this power that God gives his prophets and uh, we should keep praying that yeah, maybe we can achieve great things in his name. But my favourite conversation about this passage was with another friend who sees the humour in this passage. It's, and I'm going to draw some of this humour out, and you'll see this in the, in the way that it's written. One of the funniest ideas in the whole passage, in this whole episode, is the challenge itself. And I've been trying to think about how might we frame this in a modern sense. And then I was given the gift. Did anyone see the photo of Shaquille O'Neal meeting Anthony Albanese? Have you, have you seen that? Like Anthony Albanese, he's like this. Like it's a, let's have a game of basketball. It's a non-event. Um, yeah, that's Shaquille O'Neal's just popping hoops in, and, and you know, Anthony Albanese can do nothing. But the the image that I came up with was uh, with two boxing promoters possibly arranging a battle between their best fighters. Um, they're making sure that the stadium's got enough room for all their supporters, and, and one of the profits, uh, one of the promoters is going to bring 850 supporters. Um, but and his champion is imaginary, non-existent, or, or he's too busy to turn up. The other promoter tells his supporters, stay at home, I'm just going to go on my own. His champion's undefeated, undisputed, never been defeated. He doesn't even have to walk into the ring, and, uh, but he does, and he proves that he exists, and with that wins the bout, and the other guy doesn't even turn up, if we could imagine it that way. It's easy for us looking at this account in the Bible, knowing what the outcome's going to be. But I'm going to quickly go through the passage, look at the story elements as they occur, and then we're going to drill into one key verse. So let's look at what happens here. Elijah sets out the rules of the challenge. In verse 23, he says, sorry, verse 20, he sets out the rules of the challenge in 23, and then in 24, he says, then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all of the people say, what you say is good. So they agree to the terms of the, the competition. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal choose their bull first, and he has to add, you know, we, we see this phrase a couple of times, don't light your fire at the end of verse 25. He's already told them the rules, you're not allowed to light the fire, and God's going to light the fire, but he has to tell them again. He doesn't want any cheating. He doesn't want these guys just slipping in a, a quick light match or whatever they've got to, to get this thing started. And then they start calling on the name of Baal from morning to noon. There is no answer. Elijah then begins to taunt the prophets of Baal. One bold prophet of God taunting 450 prophets of Baal. The so-called troublemaker of Israel is true to form. He has so much courage. 
Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought or he's busy or he's travelling. Maybe he's asleeping you know, and you've got to wake him up. These taunts are pretty harsh and belittling. These aren't godlike behaviours suggesting that you know, he's not paying attention or he's travelling somewhere. And we get a pretty lame interpretation in our NIV Bibles. Um, if you read this in the New Living Translation or the, um, the ESV or the CEV, we get a more literal translation of the Hebrew here. And so I've got one on the screen there. 1 Kings 18, 27. Maybe he's daydreaming or using the toilet or travelling somewhere. Maybe he's asleep and you have to wake him up. Literally the translation of what's going on here. Your God is too busy on the toilet to listen to you in this great competition to prove who you really are. This is where we're seeing this humour in the story. Elijah's having a great time here. He's taken on these guys. He already knows what's going to happen. He's already got it in the bag, but he's having fun with it. He lets them carry on till 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the time of the evening sacrifice. Then things start to get serious. Elijah rebuilds the altar that had been torn down, deliberately choosing 12 stones to represent the, um, the descendants of Jacob in verse 31. He digs a big trench around it. Everyone would have watched him do this on his own. He arranges his wood on the altar. He cuts up the bull, and then he asks for four large jars of water. What? Are you joking? We're on the top of a mountain in the middle of a drought and he's asking for water? What's going on here? Yet Elijah asked the people not to do it once, not to do it twice. He made them do it thrice, three times, these large jars of water. We can speculate that there was probably a spring nearby and archaeologists tell us that there is a spring on Mount Carmel and it's fairly safe to say that God would have made sure there's enough water available for this to happen. Probably more water than most of the people had seen there for a long time. Then we read in um, verse 36 that at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. In 36, he prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is a simple prayer. It's not complicated. It acknowledges God for who he is, the God of the covenant made with Abraham, Elijah. And Elijah asks for the concurrence that he's acting as the servant of the Lord. And then he says, answer me. Why? So that the people will know who is God and that they're forgiven and they will turn their backs to worshipping him, the one true God. In verse 38, fire fell and it burned up everything. Nothing was left. Everything was gone. This would have been spectacular. Everything burnt up. The bull, the wood, the stones, the dust, the water. Everything's gone. Nothing left. In contrast, right there at that very time, the altar of Baal is still still intact. The 450 prophets of Baal would have been standing there stunned, looking at what they've just seen. And then the entire multitude, the crowd there, fell to the ground crying, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. There's one obvious thing to do here, isn't there? Follow the Lord's command. Deuteronomy 13 says this, Troublemakers have risen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods you've not not known. 
And I'm summarising verse 14. If it is true, 15, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town. And that's what they do. They take the prophets and they slaughter them. In one afternoon, Ahab has been shown who is really God and all the prophets are slain before his eyes, humiliated. What's is there left to do? Well, Elijah tells him, go and get something to eat. You know, you've got a big journey ahead of you. You've, you go and eat. And this would bring us toward part three of this sermon where we see that short lesson in prayer. Just as we learned in the kids' talk this morning, you could think of Elijah's prayer as a, a push prayer, pray until something happens. Elijah prayed, sent his sermon to check, nothing, praise again, check, nothing, praise again, check, seven times over. We're going to spend more time in November. We're setting up a series for prayer for us to go through in November. There'll be six sermons that we'll be running through as part of a church, our church. And that, that's drawing out the values that we picked earlier this year as a church. And we really want to spend time understanding what prayer means for us. So get ready for that. I'm excited by it. So uh, we're starting to pull that together and get everything ready. But um, this is a short lesson in prayer, that push prayer. But there's something that I've glossed over, something I've deliberately missed, and I hope you noticed. I skipped over one critical verse in this passage this morning. We're going to go back and we're going to look at it very closely. I wanted to explore the whole chapter because it gives us a really good story. It gives us a really good episode in the Bible. And there's a lot for us to learn here. But we really could have had a sermon just on this one passage, 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah went before the people and said, How long... Will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. This whole exercise in conducting this challenge between Baal and God creates a situation where the people must choose. This verse applies exactly to us as it applied to the nation of Israel that day on Mount Carmel. There are six concluding remarks that I'm going to make here. We'll get through them quickly, don't stress. It's, but these are the six remarks. Make a choice. Who do you serve? Who do you truly follow? Do you truly follow God? We must make a choice to deliberately follow God, not just on Sunday, not just when we feel like it. Are you a weekend Christian? Do not sit on the fence. If God is God, follow him. The people said nothing. There was no answer when they were given that challenge before the display. They had no response. There was no answer. The, an the word answer pops up in this passage quite a few times. It's a key word in this whole story. Just like Baal, when he was called to answer, there was no answer. But when Elijah prayed to God, what did he say? He said, answer me, Lord, answer me. And God Almighty, he did answer with a burst of fire. Number two, how long do you need? It says there in verse 21, how long will you waver? God promised no rain until Elijah prayed for rain. Three and a half years they waited, and then that afternoon God delivered. How about you? How long do you need to make a full commitment to God? Life in the world is good. Sin is tempting. It's easy to revel in the pleasures of this world. It's hard to be a Christian. Maybe you've been living your life outwardly as a Christian, but there's sin in your heart. It will keep you from a full and complete relationship with God until you acknowledge it. How long are you going to wait? I'll wait till I'm older. 
I'll wait till I've got more time. You know, once the kids are grown up, I'm really busy with work at the moment, so I'll wait till I'm retired. But the problem we've got is a sin problem. Our human nature will be tempted, contrary to good, away from good. So the decision you need to make, you need to make it at once. You need to repent and say, now God is my God and that is forever. Number three, an absurd position. Wavering between two opinions becomes an absurd position when we're talking about following God or not following God. This is a choice between choosing life or death. You cannot run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. I was talking about this with my friends at work. Um, and I, I talk about, hey, I'm preaching at church on Sunday. You should all come along. And there's no one here, but hopefully they'll, they'll hear the message and they, they hear me talking about it anyway. And my Nepalese friend offered me a, a Nepalese saying, Duabi mua mai kata. And it translates, you cannot have your feet in two boats. That sounds pretty good. That makes sense as soon as you hear it. You cannot have your feet in two boats. Let's dig a little bit deeper about what the NIV says. Um, NIV, sorry, says waver between two opinions. There's a Hebrew verb used in this passage. It says posacha, and it's used in the original text, and it's used twice in the passage. The better translation is, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? The New Revised Standard Version translates this. The other time this verb is used in the passage is when we're talking about the, the prophets dancing around the altar. The true translation should be that the prophets of Baal were limping around the altar. And there we have this literary connection. How long will you go limping between two opinions? And then we see the prophets of Baal limping around the, uh, the altar. So when you reject the pleasures of the world, but you fully haven't grasped hope and the joy of salvation, you cannot live the life that God wants you to. This is an absurd position. Your feet are in two boats. Number four, deciding in opinion means also deciding in action. Can't remember who said it first or where I first heard it, but there's approximately 30 centimetres between living in eternal life with God in heaven and not. It's the distance between your head and your heart. You can have all the head knowledge, but until it gets to your heart, until you do something with it, it doesn't mean anything. If you don't accept Christ into your heart, you haven't chosen him at all. The choice needs to be made every day. The multitude could have argued with Elijah when he challenged them, how long will you limp between two opinions? They could have said, how do you know who we follow? But it's obvious. They were not decided in opinion because they'd not decided in action. Does every single person that knows you know that you follow Christ? They will when they see it. Be prayerful, trust in Christ, be faithful, be upright, be loving. Live Christ outwardly in your life every day. Number five, if God is God, follow him. Our penultimate point this morning is this. The two opinions that people were choosing between was if God is God or Baal is God. We don't choose to follow God because he will give us more wealth. If God is God, follow him. We don't choose to follow God because life will be more comfortable. If God is God, follow him. Serve him. Obey him. Only because he says who he is, the great I am. When you say God is God and Christ is your saviour and the gospel is true, you've made a choice. You haven't waited. You don't limp between two opinions. You are taking action. And finally, our last, our last concluding point, God answered with fire. 
You could imagine the crowd standing there that, that morning, hearing Elijah say to God, the God who answers with fire is God. That was the challenge. They probably mumbled, we don't want fire, we want water, we've been in drought. This is the difference between provision and judgment. Rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike, Matthew 5.45. But fire, the fire of God's spirit will help you decide, or else it'll be the fire of judgment that you'll be facing. You might like to pray this prayer right now. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to my heart that I might be a whole burnt offering to you to burn up the wood, to burn up the stones of my sin, burn up the very dust of worldliness and lick up the water of impiety. Today I choose to follow you. That's a prayer worth praying. Pray that with your whole heart. You can mean it. Make a choice. How long do you need? You've got an absurd position while ever you haven't made a choice. Deciding in opinion means deciding in action. If God is God, follow him and God will answer with fire. If you've prayed that prayer this morning or thought about that prayer, please tell someone. Talk to someone about it. You don't have to tell me, but make sure you tell someone. We need to know. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your son Jesus to die on the cross, that your offer of mercy and grace uh, fulfills all of your wrath towards us. It takes away our sin and makes us holy before you. We thank you, Lord, that we can read from your Bible this morning, that we can read and understand this text and what it might have been like there on the mountain that day when Elijah prayed, answer me, Lord, answer me, you did. You sent the fire, you consumed the altar, and everything was there and a message was seen. We can see that message in our lives today, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that if anyone here in this congregation has heard this message and wants to make a decision, that you'll let that happen, that you'll speak to their hearts, give them the spirit and let them know you and own you as their saviour. Amen.